Brother Jerry, the pastor here at Friendship Baptist Church, and you are about to watch one of our messages. I hope that during this time that you would prayerfully listen. I hope that the Lord speaks to you, that he uses this message to help you grow. I hope you're able to experience God. I hope you're able to connect with him and connect with our church. I hope that you're able to respond to what he's doing in your life. I hope you enjoy. May the Lord bless you during this time. So, uh, Brother Mark, would you lead us in a prayer? Yes. Heavenly Father God, uh, it is so awesome to be in your house today, Lord. It's so awesome to lift up uh, praise to you in song, God, and it's, and uh, we're looking so forward to hearing a word from you, God, through Brother Jerry. I just pray, Lord, that you'll anoint him, God, uh, have him speak those words that we're in need of. Lord God, just pray that we're a blessing, because uh, I know there's so many in there here, Lord, that's a blessing to me in this group. Uh, God, uh, there's none other like you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, that willingly went to that cross, God. We thank you for being with us through these trying times, God, of loss of life, um, sickness, uh, struggles everywhere, God. And uh, But, l- Lord, we know you're there. We know you're involved in, in our lives. And, God, just help our hearts to uh, reach out to you in all things, God. All these things I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saints of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. 
On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share. When his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the sky and the roll is called a thunder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the master from the dawn to setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done And the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there When the roll is called up yonder When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there Well this next song, uh, I know all of you have heard it, but uh, it's, you know, fear is a liar, and fear ain't nothing but Satan. And uh, God says in the Bible more than 365 times, do not be afraid. Amen. Although as hard as it is, we have to trust God in uh, what his word says. So listen to the song, and... Uh, just stand with us and we'll lift it up to you. Praise God. My goodness, that's powerful. You feel the Lord's presence this morning? Let me ask that again. Y'all feel the Lord's presence in here this morning? There we go. If you feel his presence, let's, let's show him that we're aware of him, that he is here. I'm telling you, I'm excited. I didn't even know there were going to be... Um, ripping up all these lies i'm telling you that's just exciting when i look and see uh, uh the truth and word when i hear it in song and and you think about uh how fear is a liar you know fear holds us back so much doesn't it i think those those lyrics are so true step your or stop your right in your steps take your breath away i can't tell you how many times uh, that's happened to me in my life but god overcomes that praise the lord you know this week we're starting again back where we left off we're in uh, 2 Thessalonians is where we're going to be at. You know, before revival, the Sunday before we preached um, and finished up the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. And that was exciting. And, and in fact, really, this whole time that we've been in this series has been exciting, hasn't it? I mean, since November, we have been in this series called The Gospel in Motion. So, I mean, that's almost nine whole months that we've been looking at this simple truth that God has placed this beautiful news in our lives and He is using us as vehicles to move this news on to the ends of the earth, to all nations. I mean, it's beautiful, church, when you really... Slow down and think about what we've been reading through all the way through the book of Acts. We're already over halfway through in chapter 17. We finished that up and watched all these uh, times where he goes to all these places, Paul and his team, and they share the gospel. And, and th then we looked at that time he spent in Thessalonica, and then he wrote that letter to 1 Thessalonians. So we jumped over to that letter, and then we're going to jump to the second letter. But that first one was really exciting. I mean, it was um, provoked. This beautiful book was provoked by Paul's concern and his love for their faith. And so we saw the evidence of their faith mentioned there. We saw Paul, Silas, Timothy's boldness as they proclaimed the gospel, their boldness in God, it tells us. We saw um, um, the beauty of this hope that we have in Christ, this call to holiness and this hope. And he touched on Christ's return. The reason I'm reminding you of that is because the second book, 2 Thessalonians, is going to come back and wrap around this theme of Christ's return, the second coming of Christ. And so... I don't know about y'all, I think sometimes when we hear about the second coming of Christ, Christ's return, our minds can go in two different places. We can get in that place of, it's any moment kind of a fearful, dreadful, I don't know when it's going to happen, or we can get in this moment over here of, man, those are, those are some loonies that talk about this day, <laughs> and that they've been predicting it from the time, so we don't even address it at all. We kind of have these two different mindsets sometimes, but I hope that the Lord opens our eyes just a little bit more into this hope that is in the second coming of Christ. You know, because the majority, this three brief chapters, the majority of this is themed on the second coming. That's what we're going to look at in these three chapters. We're not going to spend long in Second Thessalonians. But Paul's writing them because 
He's got a concern because they're, they're, they've got some misunderstandings of the second coming. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit later here. But they had some misunderstandings, so he was correcting those, clearing those up. But again, it was more about this beautiful hope that he wanted to make sure they held fast to. And so that's my prayer this morning. Father God, as we open up your word, Lord, as we meet you face to face, as we feel the presence of the Spirit of God in this place, Lord, I pray, Lord, you would give us discernment, understanding, clarity, wisdom, and discernment as we open up the word of truth, God. Lord, this word that is before us in our hands, we're privileged to hold, God. It's inspired by you, breathed by you, Lord. And I pray you make it so known to us how alive it really is and the hope that comes in this word, Lord. Give us understanding, fill us with hope. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So before we jump into this letter, though, this morning, bear with me because I got to give y'all some context. I got to give you just a little bit of context, a lot of bit of context to understand what we're getting into as we get into this, because we're really truthfully we're moving from milk to meat, kind of like Hebrews tells us we're going from a place of 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 soft milk and so to a place of meat like a T-bone. You know what I mean? Like that good meat. Y'all grab your forks with me today, okay? Because we're going to get into the meat of the Word of God, this idea of His second coming. But before that, we need this context. And so the first point that I want to make this morning, before we even get to our passage, is that the New Testament brings to light some astonishing truths. Some astonishing truths about Christ's comings. Notice that plural, Christ's comings. And so this beautiful picture that, that the New Testament, that we're privileged, that we're blessed to have, gives us this astonishing, amazing truth about Christ's comings. And I say comings because I'm talking about his first coming, his incarnation. And when he came, God as man and died on the cross, raised from the grave, goes and ascends to the Father. And then the second coming of where he returns, the day of judgment, if you will. And so what I'm about to say, I know most of y'all understand this, but I want to be explicitly clear about what I'm about to say because of the implications that it has for us. And so here we go. This is going to be a shocker. Y'all with me? If you're listening, say, I'm listening. <clears throat> It's going to be a shocker. Before they had the New Testament, before it was written and they had it before them, before it was canonized into 27 books, before they had the New Testament, they had no New Testament to read. That blows your mind, right? This idea that before it was written, before it was in their hands, they had no New Testament. I say that because this simple truth is so important for us this morning because sometimes, if you're like me, we get so contextualized with what we have in front of us that it's hard to ever even imagine a time without it. So go to this place with me for a moment this morning. I want to take you to this place this morning where we go to this idea of being in the shoes of these Jews that had no New Testament before them. This is important. I mean, when you think about this, go back to where we remember Paul going to Thessalonica. Remember, that's Acts 17. In fact, I got it on the screen here. Acts 17, verse 1. I want to read this again to you, just a little short passage here. Acts 17, verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Did you hear that? Listen to where they are. A synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you, he's the Christ. It's him. He's the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, which are those Greeks that believed in the Jewish God. So we have the Greeks that believed in the Jewish gods, a group of Jews, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So just imagine this with me for a second. Here you are, you have the Old Testament, you're following your religion, your Jewish kind of faith, and you're, you're going through your faithfulness, and some guy just shows up in your synagogue from way another country, probably even talks a little strange, like I used to before y'all converted me to East Texan. <laughs> but talks a little strange, and he shows up to this place, and he says, listen, this guy that you're studying about, this, this, this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed chosen one, let me tell you, you've got him wrong a little bit. He's going to come, he's going to die, he's going to raise from the grave, and then he's going to ascend into heaven with the Father, and then he'll come back again one day. Well, this was absolutely insane to the Jewish people. Do what? Huh? That don't make any sense to them. Now, I know you're thinking, I got my New Testament. <laughs> Put yourself before the New Testament. Imagine what they're thinking. 
I know with us, I mean, we have hindsight, right? When you think about hindsight, it's a beautiful thing. We have hindsight. Not only do we have hindsight, but we have a beautiful gift, a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit to help us as we read the Scriptures. And we have the whole New Testament today to show us all those connections from them Old Testament prophecies where they connected and show that this was all pointing to Christ. That's a beautiful privilege that we take advantage of sometimes. We don't even think about the blessing we have in that. But here they were without hindsight, without the Holy Spirit in the same way. I mean, the Holy Spirit's there, but it's not in the exact same way right then because there was no New Testament. Again, before the New Testament was ever written. So let me take you to this place of understanding before the New Testament. And to do that, I want to read some of the words, the last words that God had given his people before the time of the New Testament. The book right before Matthew, before the first book of the New Testament is what, y'all? Malachi. So Malachi, the very last chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, has some strong words that I want you to hear. These are, now notice this. God is using a prophet named Malachi to speak these words to his people in which he will be silent for 400 years after. So imagine hearing these words. Then imagine being the one to hear Malachi in person or being one of those that has been passed down in, in written form and, and they've read it later on or one of the Jews that were sitting there listening to Paul. Imagine yourself hearing these words and thinking about these words. Here's what it says, Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven and all the proud yes all who do wickedly will be stubble and the day which is coming shall burn them up says the lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch but to you who fear my name the son of righteousness shall arise and with healing in his wings you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Then he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. But listen to this verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Wow. Those are the last words you got for 400 years. What is it? What's God saying? He's saying, well, there's a day coming, right? And they were anticipating this day. Those Jews that were sitting in that synagogue listening to Paul, they would have been anticipating this day. For 400 years, they anticipated a day that God would come. But did you catch the type of coming that they would have anticipated? One like an oven burning. One with fiery judgment. One with... with Pure justice given here from the Lord. They, that's an aspect of it. But also, there's another aspect here. That they anticipated the healing that the Son of Righteousness would arise and there would be healing from His wings and there would be a joy in those who fear the name of the Lord. So they waited for this day. However, I don't think they ever imagined that it would come in two stages. I think they just kind of had this picture Christ was coming. This anointed one was coming. I've heard it kind of explained like this one time. It's like God gave the prophets this image of, of mountains. And so they had this mountain range, and they could see it, and it was truth, and it was beautiful. They could see this beautiful truth of the future. However, when they looked at it, they just expressed what they saw, this, this beautiful, through God's inspired word, of course, but expressed what they saw. However, they didn't realize it was actually two different mountain peaks. There was one in front of the other, and what they really didn't realize is this valley that was in between the mountain peaks. And what they really didn't realize is that valley would be over 2,000 years long and counting. You understand where I'm talking about? That Christ came, and then there's this valley, 2,000 years, and we're still counting before he comes again. They didn't catch that. While they were seeing it in truth, explaining it, and was excited about it, they never really caught how... Um, distinguishable these two mountains were in a sense i think it's a good way to think about it and so it was pretty perplexing <laughs> to say the least when jesus showed up and he arrived not as a burning oven not as one with fiery judgment but as a baby in swaddling cloths it was pretty perplexing to them when this jesus this anointed one showed up and yes lived his life and died a death and raised from the grave maybe even and that he ascends into heaven, maybe even. And that through the, the sun of righteousness arising, as Malachi tells us, that there was healing given. 
through the resurrection, amen? They would have caught that, but they didn't understand. What about the burning oven, Jesus? <laughs> what about the justice? What about the vengeance? What about the righting every wrong, Jesus, that is proclaimed, that is promised? And so this created quite an interesting conundrum. It was kind of an interesting thought here. Wait a second, what is happening? And so I want you to think through this with me. What this interesting thought we often call is, that I want to dig into, is called the already and not yet. The already and not yet. You'll actually hear that language if you read some theology books and different things. You'll hear already and not yet. So in one sense, Jesus has come. He has lived a perfect life, granted. He goes to the cross, shamed and despised, but still lives and endured it for our sake, and then raises from the grave, leaves the tomb empty, ascends to the Father, sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That has already happened, amen? And that, once and for all, has finished a victorious work. Once and for all, it's finished. Jesus himself said, it is finished. Amen. So, the already has happened. However, in that same breath, the completion of applying these accomplishments, the, the applying of the accomplishments to his people and to creation itself has not happened yet. It will happen, but we don't know when. So here we go again, church. Already and not yet. On one hand, our price for redemption, our rescue, our ransom has been paid in full, brother. Amen? Has been paid in full. Christ's first coming as the Messiah, the punishment for sin was finished. The provision of righteousness was finished. And if we are united in Christ by grace through faith in Him, if we are in Christ, my friends, then right now, in the already, you will never be more forgiven or more justified than you are today. Isn't that awesome? We'll never be more forgiven, more justified in today, in the already. That's that part. That's the work of the incarnation. But yet... The full reward and completion of restoration has not happened yet, and we don't know when it will. So while we have been given a kingdom citizenship, a passport, and a citizenship to the kingdom, we have yet to fully experience the kingdom of God. It started, but one day it'll be restored in, in, in its full presence. Though we have been freed and set freed from sin, we still battle with sin, or am I the only one? Though we've been set free from sin, we still do what we do not wish, as Paul says. Our spirit and our flesh, they battle. Though we have become new citizens, our new creation, and the old things have passed away, though that's happened, we still wait our resurrected bodies. You see, though we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, there will be one day we're in His fullness and His glory and His holiness, and we too will be conformed completely into the image of Christ. That's the not yet. That's the consummation of Christ. So incarnation, consummation. Already, not yet. And we're in between <laughs> in this beautiful time. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But let's come back to this idea. The New Testament has given us a beautiful blessing in understanding this. And that's what God was using Paul as he was in that synagogue sharing with them. He was the New Testament. God was using him to write the New Testament. Part of it, right? And so this beautiful thing happens. And it might not be seen any more clear than when Jesus stands up in Luke chapter 4. And he, he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, as it was his custom, it says. He's in the synagogue. They hand him a book to read. And guess what book it is? It's Isaiah. He opens Isaiah up. He goes to chapter 62. And you can look at the screen here, chapter 62, um, which is actually Luke 4 here, verse 16. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened it, he found the place where it was written. Now here's where he quotes Isaiah 62, verse 1 and 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Whew, starting strong. Because he has anointed me, I am Christ, I am the chosen one, I am the anointed one, to preach the gospel to the poor, to, to, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set all liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now I want you to listen, he says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is Christ saying there? He's saying, 
It's been fulfilled. I am here. But you know what we don't notice if we don't dig in a little bit more? There's another clause to that second verse of Isaiah 62. So he quotes up to the very last part of Isaiah 61 2, where it says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But if you go back in your Old Testament, look at 62, Isaiah 62, 1 and 2. It ends with this, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why didn't Jesus finish that part? Because that hadn't been fulfilled yet. That's part of the not yet. He's saying, I am here. The acceptable day of the Lord's here. The captives are set free. The oppressed are forgiven. The liberated. This has been fulfilled. Yet, there's a not yet that's coming. When the day of vengeance. That's scary. The day of vengeance is coming. This is the final judgment. This is the day of the Lord. What the scriptures talk about. Another way the New Testament gives us an understanding in this is, is that the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ himself, says, I don't know when this is going to happen. Isn't that kind of interesting? The one that's to return says, I don't know when it's happening. <laughs> he says, no one knows except for the Father only. He says, nor I, nor angels. He says, only the Father knows. He says that in Matthew 24. Um, because, you know, when the disciples found out that Jesus was going back to heaven after he died and resurrected, all that was kind of new, right? <laughs> And they're going back to heaven. They thought, okay, Jesus, when are you coming back to do the rest of this that we remember all that promising? And he says, no one knows except for the Father. I want us to keep that in mind because there's a lot of scripture that talks about the day of the Lord coming. And the old prophets prophesied about the day to come. Peter said in his letter, he said, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus, when he's talking to John in, a, in the Revelation, he says, Behold, I am coming. Paul said, The Lord is at hand in Philippians. James in his letter says, The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door at the gates. We must not read these statements as if they knew when Jesus was actually returning. That's not what was inspired And as they're writing this. In fact, I think these statements are less of a sense of time and more of a sense of awareness and mission. He's at the door. It's not like he's got to travel this, this time and, and it just takes him a while and he's, he's just running late. He's at the door. He could come any moment, y'all. But it's a sense of awareness. In fact, Matthew 24, where he's talking about his coming and when Jesus himself is talking about it, here's what he says. He says in Matthew 24, 46, Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing. He says, but it, the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. You see the... The correlation here, delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he is not looking, not looking to him for him and an hour that he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him in the portion with the hypocrites and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. What's he saying? He's saying, I am going to return. It's not about necessarily this time. It's about where your eyes are they on me? Are you waiting for me? Are you waiting for me? I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but another awesome blessing where I get to where I want to get to today. I told you it's a little bit of context I've got to give you, but an awesome blessing comes in 2 Thessalonians as Paul takes three chapters and really digs into this idea of the hope that we have in Christ's return and His second coming. And again, this letter was written only three, a couple months maybe after the, the first letter, and so this goes hand in hand. I want us to keep thinking about that. So again, let's look through their lens for a moment. Only having the Old Testament, not having the New Testament, nor the Gospels, nor having um, seen Jesus or anything, Paul just kind of shows up, right? And then Paul spends three weeks saying all that you've thought your entire life is kind of wrong. <laughs> it's all pointing to this man named Jesus, who is a man, but also God. This Messiah, this chosen one, and he had to die and he raised again. And in fact, not only is this all theoretical, it has happened. His name is Jesus. <laughs> I mean, think about that for a moment. And then what happens? We know he spent three weeks there reasoning with them. Persecution happens. He gets kicked out. Can you imagine if I spent three weeks with you talking about a guy you never met before, talking about a, a return that he's going to have that you never really understood before, and then I got kicked out of the town? You'd be lost, wouldn't you? So God uses these letters through Paul to give them some hope and understanding. And that's where we come to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. No, no, of course they're confused, right? 
course they're confused. Of course they needed the, the word of God to be given to them. Aren't you all confused without the word of God? All right, so the, coming into 2 Thessalonians, the, the second point of the message today is talking about the second coming of Christ is premised with the implications for present time. What I mean by that is before he really gets into the subject of the second coming, he ties it into why he's talking about it, why it's important right now. He ties it into the present time. If we could learn something, church, we need to learn this in the day and age that we're in. People want to talk about Christ's coming, and they want to talk about it all the time, but how often do we tie it in with what are we to do right now in the midst of that instead of just sit on our behinds and wait for his return? Let us be active and looking to him for his return. Amen? Look at this verse, verse 1 of Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, it says, Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas here, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 3 says, We are bound to thank God always for you. Thanking God again. Thanking God for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all bounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all the persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul starts this letter identically in the exact same way that he started his first letter to Thessalonians. He says, To you, the church, the called out ones who are in Christ, in God the Father, he says, because you're in God the Father, because you're in Christ, now you have grace and this peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And then he sets the tone with thanking God once again for him. It's a very similar way he did in the first letter. And he thanks them for a growing faith and a growing love. Praise God for gospel growth, y'all. Right? Praise God. I pray that when people look at you and they see us here at Friendship and they look at you, when you're outside of here particularly, I pray that they would be able to say, I thank God, and for good reason, because it is fitting, because your faith is growing exceedingly, and your love for one another is growing abundantly. Church, can people say that about us? It's not in our power, it's in God's power. That's why he's thanking God for this. May we yield to the power of the Spirit in the way our faith has grown and the way we love one another. That's your pastor's prayer, by the way. Paul thanks God for this, and he points out and says um, that other churches of God are noticing them. And they notice that he says churches of God here. I think that's important because we got this movement in this time where people just say it's all about the global church and there's not really a need for the local church. Um, anything you look at scripture goes against that. I really believe that right here we see the church is already formation of local gatherings. It's so important that we see local gatherings and that are part of the global church. Yes, but we have these gatherings of, of local committed covenant members of church of a church. And so he says to the churches of God, he says, here's what we um, noticed. He says the patience and faith of all persecution tribulations you're facing. And so as Paul's about to talk about the second coming, he ties it in with the present tense and says, let me talk about how you get hope from the second coming because of the suffering is really what he's talking about here. The suffering that you're in right now. Let me talk to you about this for a moment. In fact, he makes a bold statement. He says in verse 5, which, talking about the suffering, is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Ooh, that's strong. We're going to get to that in a minute. Their persecution and affliction was setting the stage as Paul was about to talk about this. And suffering wasn't anything new to them. You all realize this, right? In the first letter, he writes to them and says, we are destined to suffer. When he was going around to churches, he said, it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. In Romans, he says, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. He says that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Their suffering is not absent from the Christian life, y'all. In fact, suffering is promised for Christians. And it's a blessing for Christians. That's kind of radical, isn't it? How many of y'all going around saying, I'm suffering and it's a blessing? <laughs> it's not the way we think naturally, is it? But that's the way the scriptures teach us. And I want to get to this. Suffering is part of our walk with Christ. If you never see the blessing of your suffering, listen to me. If you never see the suffering 
I mean, the blessing of your suffering, then I believe you don't understand suffering from a biblical viewpoint. If you don't see the blessing of your suffering ever, then you're not looking at it through the lens of Christ, especially through the lens of the gospel. Suffering is something God uses to sanctify us. He uses it to make us holy. He uses it to get our eyes off of this world and to get our eyes back on Him. If we never suffered, why would we ever have to look to Christ? To get our eyes back on Him. He uses our suffering to bring others and us as well to Him. He used the suffering of His own Son to bring salvation to the world, church. Praise God for suffering, amen? Oh, that was not very loud. Praise God for suffering, amen? Praise God. Thank you, Trip. Or that was Holton. Thank you, Holton. Comes to this next question here. It's really important. Paul calls suffering evidence of God's righteous judgment. How in the world can our suffering, especially done by sinful hands that are persecuting you, how in the world can that be evidence of God's righteous judgment? Well, that's what Paul's about to talk about, and that's what provokes him to this idea of the second coming. So look at verse 5 again with me. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us. The third point here this morning is Christ's second coming magnifies and exemplifies God's righteousness within our suffering. And even more so, His righteous judgment and appointing and ordaining of our suffering. He is magnified. His righteousness is magnified in that. And He gives us three different ways this happens. The first one is this idea that we are rescued from worldliness and tailored to be made fit for the kingdom of God. That word here, when you hear this in verse 5, it says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. I want to make sure we understand that phrase, that you may be considered worthy. That worthy does not mean deserving of. we got the wrong idea of worth today. It's not a deserving of. To be considered worthy or made worthy is Him suiting us, fitting us, tailoring us to this place of, of being able to enter into the kingdom of God. That's important. You know, before I went to prom... That's not that many years ago. Y'all realize that, right? Before I went to prom, uh, I had to go to this weird place. I'd never done this before in my life. And you got to go to this tuxedo shop, and they got to suit you and tailor you and, and fit you for a suit, right? And once I got fitted and tailored, I was able to get my tux, and I was able to enter into prom. And I just sat in a chair and didn't dance because that was not the cool thing to do back then, right? Was y'all's prom like that? No, y'all got, I know y'all, mm-hmm. I know the history of our church. We had people get kicked out of our church back in the early 1900s because of dancing. <laughs> I know y'all's proms. In the same way I had to be suited for a tux to be able to enter into the prom, I know that's a lousy illustration, but God uses suffering to suit us, to tailor us, to enter into his kingdom. He uses that to tailor us, to enter into his kingdom. The second way God's righteousness is shown in our suffering is because God will repay those that are the afflictors. He says that. He's a sense that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So Paul's simply saying God will bring justice. Every wrong will be righted. Praise God. The third, God's righteousness is shown in our suffering by giving those who suffer rest. He says, and to give you who are troubled rest with us. And this is not... Just this idea of absence from pain and toil and suffering, is, it's more of a reward and a blessing to be in the glory and holiness of Christ. And so, His righteous judgment is exemplified, magnified in our suffering. The fourth point I got this morning for us is Jesus' second coming will be the climax of His first coming. We celebrate Christmas like nobody else, and we celebrate Easter like nobody else. We don't really have a holiday where we celebrate the second coming because it hadn't happened yet. But I'm telling you what, it's going to be greater than anything we can ever imagine. 
It's the climax. And that's what he's getting at here as he builds his way up to this. In verse 7 he says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us, he says, When, now catch that word, when, when Jesus returns. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God or those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed this is the description of one of the most terrifying and glorious events all in one time it's a terrifying yet glorious event that we're talking about here just a couple things i want to note first off jesus will be revealed oh my you know, there's so many around us in our families. There's so many of us in which Jesus is hidden from. They have yet to really see Jesus. But that day, there will be no hiding. Jesus will be revealed in his fullness and all will see Jesus. Now, that is a glorious thing and a terrifying thing. That he will be revealed. Not, and he will descend. It's not another vision. It's not another um, apparition or anything like that. It is an event in which he will descend from heaven. Again, this, uh, with all authority from heaven. That's the place where he's at now, reigning, reigning with authority at the right hand of God. He comes and enters into earth with that same authority. And Jesus will return with mighty angels. And the scary part to me is in flaming fire. Please listen this morning. That Jesus will return in flaming fire. That's the burning like an oven Malachi was talking about. Matthew 25, Jesus himself says, When the Son of Man comes in its glory and the angels with him, he talks about how he'll separate the goats on his left and the sheep on his right. And he talks about how, how they did all these things uh, for him because they did it for the least of them. You remember that passage? And at the end of it, he says to the goats, he says, Depart from me. And he casts them into the eternal fire. That's what Jesus himself says. He comes with flaming fire as if his righteousness, justness, perfectness, purity of who he is, when it comes in contact with the wickedness of the world, it's almost as if it ignites the fire or fuels the fire of hell. That's scary to me, church. Where are your eyes this morning? Are they on Christ because he is coming? says that Jesus will bring about complete and final justice. It says vengeance will come, not ours but His. Those who are not in Christ will be judged. It says those who do not know God and those who do not obey His gospel. We've got to get out of the habit of separating those. I think those are the same group. Because the Scriptures teach, I believe, that when you know God, you love Him. And when you love Him, you obey Him. You keep His commandments, it tells us. I think we try to separate those too much. It says that he's going to bring about justice and judgment on both those who do not obey, those who do not know God. Jesus will cast out them who reject him. It says, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Absent from the presence of the Lord. Absent from his presence. Can you imagine? Absence from the power, from his power. The glory of His power. Yet, the glorious part that we see is God's ultimate purpose and aim in the second coming is, is that He will be glorified in His saints. It says they will be admired and marveled at all among who have believed. This is Christ's purpose, His aim, Christ's design in His coming. You know, Colossians tells us that all things were created in and for Christ. I believe all things will end in and for Christ. To His glorification. Folks, right now, me and you live in a time between these events. We live in that valley. Let me wrap this up with this last point, fifth point. Talking about the second coming of Christ is finished with the implications for the present time. So not only does Paul start with where they are and what's going on in their suffering, but he wraps it up after he talks about the hope that's in the second coming and the, the threat in the second coming, if you will. And then he pulls it back around and says, all right. Come back to what does that mean for you right now? 
Look at verse 11. Therefore we also pray. Oh, here's a good place to start, church. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That, listen, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, here you are in this time after the already and before the not yet. He says, in this time I pray, he says, I pray that you would be counted worthy of this calling. That's not something we can do in our own power, church. We'll never be able to be counted worthy on our own means. Our worthiness comes from Christ. And so I'm asking you today, where are your eyes? Are you heeding to these words that's been given from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament from Jesus himself? James says that he's standing at the door. Are you the servant that is expecting him? Or are you the servant that thinks he's delaying his coming and going about your own business? Are you one of the ten virgins that the Scripture talks about where five of them, it says, took oil with them and waited for the bridegroom? However, the other five went but were foolish and had to go back and miss the coming of the bridegroom, of the groomsmen. Listen to me. Don't be foolish. Call on the name of Christ. Call on His mercy today and say, Lord, your scripture kind of terrifies me today. This idea that you're coming, not as a lovey-dovey baby, but as a legit, all-out, fiery, fueling sword-in-his-mouth kind of judgment on a white horse with blood up to the breast of the horse the Bible tells us about? Would that be a reality to you to where today you would say, Lord, I am in more need of your mercy today than I ever imagined. Would you pour it out on me? Would you give me your grace? Would you do that today? Would you understand suffering in the light of Scripture? Maybe you're suffering. I know many of us are. Lots of us lost jobs in this time. Lots of us have struggled through how to administrate our business in this time. Lots of us are struggling through this whole virus thing, loneliness, all the different things that are going on. Are you looking at that suffering through your own eyes? Are you looking at it through what God might be preparing you for as He's suiting you and fitting you and tailoring you into entering His kingdom? Maybe the suffering that you're facing is for Christ to get your attention in the first place where you need to call out to Him today for the first time. And if that is you, you come and talk with me. I'll walk you through what the gospel is. That Christ loves you, died a death on the cross, finished it through his resurrection, ascended, and he will return one day, yes. And in this time, he has blessed us with an opportunity to spare few and that his salvation might come upon those before the final judgment. Father God, Lord, I lift you in praise, Lord. And Lord, I think oftentimes we can talk about your love, and rightfully so, Lord. Your scriptures are a love story, Father. But God, let us not miss the justice and the judgment and the wrath of God in which your love truly fulfills through Christ, Lord. But if we are apart from Christ, that does not apply to us in the final judgment or when we pass from this earth to that judgment, Lord, it will not be enough just to simply say, I was at church or I was uh, believing in God that He existed, but I was never really in Him. He never gave me a new heart. He never transformed me because I never really wanted to abide in Him. Lord, I pray that You would bring that about, Lord. Lord, bring about salvation this morning, Lord. Help people call out to You and give them a new heart, Lord. Lord, help those that are in you, that are in Christ, understand their circumstances, their suffering might just well be your very hand fitting them to enter the beautiful presence of your kingdom, Lord. May we come before you. May we seek your face right now, Lord. 
Lord, maybe even today we're about to go and have a baptism right after this, Lord. Maybe today you, someone says, I, I, I've done the prayer and I got baptized when I was younger, but it was sometime after that. I don't even know exactly how it all happened, but I know God transformed me and changed me. But that first baptism wasn't really baptism. It was just simply getting wet and later on I really come to know Christ. May they have the courage today to say, without clothes, I come and I want to be baptized too, Lord. And be baptized in their own clothes right now and go home wet, Lord. For a testimony of who you are, Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of you. And Lord, as we anticipate your return, Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.